Alright, so the deal was is that I recorded an episode like a day ago about, I don't even remember what it was about, um, but anyway, I just felt really uninspired about it. Um, didn't feel like my best episode, didn't feel like I really even cared about what I was talking about, which kind of is weird, because normally I'm pretty passionate about what I'm talking about, and I've got all these life, well, I've got all these thoughts that go through my head about life. And, uh, and then I was walking around today and I was doing a little bit of work. And what I do now is normally I'm like a volleyball coach, beach volleyball specifically. And now I've, since coronavirus has kind of hit, been doing two things. I've been, uh, delivering pizzas for Domino's and I've been, uh, performing maintenance on rental properties. And uh, it's what my dad does. And so I'm kind of like just helping him out with work. And uh, today I had to go buy a house that had, like, the simplest thing. They just, the the screws came out of the closet door um, on the hinges, I should say. And it's a bifold, so there's there's two two doors, and you know, they, they collapse together and then spread out. Um, and the screws came out. So I had to go in and, and put new screws in. And uh, when putting those new screws in, First off, the, the screws I had didn't, uh, they couldn't go in the holes that were already there. The holes that were already there had been expanded probably from somebody pulling on the door too hard or something like that. And so the new screws that I brought with me wouldn't go into that hole. So I had to take the hinges off and then move the hinges either up, down, in, whatever, um, and create new holes. So I do that. And it's kind of awkward because there's nothing holding the door, um, there's nothing holding the door up because it doesn't sit flush on the ground, obviously. And so I'm like trying to hold it with my foot and my hand and I'm trying to use a drill and a screw and get it into the little hole on the hinge and like hold all of these pieces together while putting enough pressure on and then not getting the screw to, to fall off. Because, you know, it's, it's like that can happen where if you push and then you push at the wrong angle and all of a sudden the, the drill slips and the screw pops off real quick. And then you got to like pick it up and try and balance it on the tip of the drill. Um, so anyway, that took me however long. It took me like 20 minutes. And I eventually get the hinges screwed back on. And I go to close the door. And I realize that the screws that I have have too big a head. So they're supposed to like, if the screw's the right size, it fits into the hinge. And the hinge has a little indentation that the screw head should fit ideally in, um, which allows it to go, the two doors to go flush together. That way there's no gaps in the closet. And the screws that I had had too big of heads. And so I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So now I got to go to the hardware store, which is 15 minutes away. And I got to go in there and, and, uh, and, and get new screws. And so I go in, I finally, it takes me a couple minutes to figure out what screws I need because it's not like I know sizes or anything like that. So I got to just kind of go along all the wood screws. Luckily, I'd been smart enough to bring the hinge with me. Um, that way I could like test all the screws in the, in the little eyelets. Um, but anyway, I, I finally find my screws, put them in a bag, you know, write the number on them, whatever. I go up to the front counter and... The lady at the front counter is like, there's only one cashier, and she's kind of joking with this customer about, like, hose bibs or whatever. I think the, the joke was, 
is that the, the lady asks, hey, these hoses can they, these hoses can all connect, right? And, and the person behind the counter says, oh, yeah, yeah, they have both, I think they both have, they have male and female parts. And then the customer goes, oh, that doesn't always mean they'll work. And she starts hooting and hollering behind the, uh, behind the counter, laughing so hard. And this really bugged me because it was like loud and slowed everything down. And I was really, really irritated. And so then I, you know, finally I get up there, I check out, it takes like three tries for my credit card to work. I go 15 minutes back. I'm in downtown Lake Oswego, which for anybody from Oregon, like it's 20 miles per hour through everywhere in downtown Lake Oswego and it's a bunch of old people. So cars are like going really slow and not moving right at the green light. And obviously I'm on edge, like I'm very frustrated at the moment. So um, it all just continues to amplify. Eventually I get back finally put it all together and it finally works and I'm just you know I get this overcoming relief but I'm still for all intents and purposes still irritated right and so on the way home um, like okay I need to go out and you just go for a walk so I plan going for a walk that kind of thing and um, I decided to pop on happiness lab Laura Santos but I didn't really listen to the episode. I just, it got me in the right headspace. Like, okay, let's think about how are we going to calm down? How are we going to be, you know, how are we going to go back to not being frustrated? And so I'm angry. And I just kind of, and now that I'm angry, I need to know, you know, what do I do now? Get it? I just slipped the name of the podcast into the show. I don't know. I thought it was funny. That's, that's the worst part of the show because I scripted it, right? Like the best things we do are, are unscripted or like, lightly outlined and then allowing our natural personalities come through anyway um the buddha or buddhists tend to think or tend tend to preach that we shouldn't suppress emotions we should let them play out and then move on and go back to a calm headspace sooner and by suppressing them we wind up keeping them inside longer and it makes it harder for us to to go about and do things right and then i started to think about you know, when I'm, when I'm fixing this closet, I like kind of let out a frustrated, ah, you know what I mean? And then and that's an okay place to do that. But what about when I'm coaching? I mean, who hasn't been frustrated when coaching or, you know, doing their job in any way? Uh, I've had players and other coaches maybe, you know, not quite understand I guess what I'm what I'm saying something that's like very clear in my head and I, I'm struggling to find the words to describe it to them in a way that makes sense to them which is I think what makes a good coach is somebody that can do that um, and that's something that I'm always trying to learn and trying to get better at but you get frustrated right and you can't just like scream you can't just be like ah! you know what I mean because then they think it's about them and that's not what you want right you don't want them to be you don't want them to feel bad because you're the one struggling to find a way to help them comprehend. That's the whole point. And so um, it's kind of that, that how can I feel the emotion? How can I be upset without hindering somebody else? And, uh, yeah, I really don't know. I mean, I wish I had that answer for you, but I don't. But something I've been trying to identify, too, is, like, what are the things – that set me on edge, right? It can't be just the fact that I struggled to put a closet together, can it? Like that, 
There's no way that that set me over the top. It has to be a compounding thing. Sometimes it's diet. Sometimes it's, you know, all sorts of other things that we do in our day that cause it. So I'm trying to pay attention to those things more. You know, I'm noticing like, okay, is it, you know, do I have two cups of coffee? And then all of a sudden I'm more frustrated than I was before. Or maybe I eat in the morning or don't eat in the morning. Or what do I eat? Like, do I have two eggs and I feel okay? But do I have bacon or whatever and all of a sudden I feel like garbage? Do I have toast and and feel lethargic but then if I have like an English muffin then I'm you know energetic and happy whatever it is I don't know but it's something I'm trying to identify and so but it's, it's finding a way to get through that frustration without I guess blowing up right you need to you need to feel the emotion and you need to to get through it without doing it and so one of the things that I found was I had a lot of fun right I was able to let it out a lot when um, especially on the volleyball court when I could go up and hit a ball right so hit a down ball you know jump serve whatever just expel some energy super quick get it out real fast Um, or move on to a different topic would sometimes help get me out of that headspace trying to think of some other things you know calming music i guess for me doesn't always work but sometimes just like singing along does um i'm a bit anybody that knows me knows i'm like a big karaoke guy love to sing and so that's some of the the strategies that i've been thinking about for frustration um but one of the other things that i've been reading or one of the books that i read not too long ago was recommended me by jordan chang um, who's an awesome dude, great volleyball coach, I think even better, just like person, coached at uh, California Irvine, men's volleyball, and he currently coaches um, Kelly Clays and Sarah Sponsel, who are like one of our top beach pairs. But he recommended the book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And one of the big parts of that is just taking note of what you're thinking, feeling, and saying, and that can help you kind of overcome some of that uh, negative emotion, right? Because some of the worst things we say is like when we're not thinking about it, when we don't think and we just blurt. And one of the things that I think that book helped me do a lot was constantly evaluate how I'm interacting with people throughout the day. And it's nothing groundbreaking, right? Like it's one of the things it says in there, I think, is people prefer to be complimented than to be criticized. Well, no, duh. If you don't know that, then, like, what are you doing, right? Nobody likes to be yelled at by their boss. Nobody likes to be told that they're doing a garbage job. And so that's a very simple process. But what the book does is it helps – it just reminds you of that, right? It reminds you of that super important thing in a way that it's like if you're reading, you're taking the time out of your day to read a book, which is not something most people do, Um, and you're thinking about your actions, and so if I can take that throughout my day, it, I found it helped me interact better. It helped me coach better um, because one of the things it reminded me was that when I'm coaching, I want to be process-based, especially at practices. Um, if we, I feel like if we get too result-based, then you lead to bad habits or you, you lose out on good habits, right? And there's a lot of, especially in like baseball and beach volleyball, uh, I think there's there's like a it's a war of attrition to an extent. Like in baseball, a great hitter hits 300, which is failing 70 for 70 percent of the time. 
a lot of people talk about that and they're like, hey, it's okay. Like in baseball, you fail 70% of the time and then you're in the Hall of Fame, right? But how do we move the thinking away from, oh, I didn't get a hit that at bat to I did something in this at bat that's going to help me maybe get a hit in the next one or the next one. And eventually over time, it's gonna. I'm doing a good thing that allows me to get a hit 30% of the time, which puts me in the Hall of Fame. In beach volleyball, it's like, what did I do in this, in this play to potentially put me into a better spot to get a block on the next play or to get a dig on the next play? And even though I didn't make the dig on this play, did I influence my opponent to do something that will earn me a point on the next one? That's something I talk about a lot with uh, any defenders that I like to work with is, hey, if we're making a move and we're getting a touch, like if we're off, if we're going the wrong way, and we are balanced and go the other and go back the other direction because they hit, you know, say I'm moving to the angle and they hit a high line. If I can bounce out and I can make a touch, right? I can just touch that ball that they hit a high line on. Now they think, okay, in order to get the ball down, I have to hit that high line there every single time, right? I can't take anything off it because if I take something off of it, she's going to actually get the dig or he's going to get the dig. Then the next time they're hitting it, they're trying to be a little too fine with it, and then they hit it out. Now you've won a point, right? But that didn't translate in that dig that you missed. All you think is, oh, I missed that dig. And so if we can – that's the process base, right? That's the that's the growth mindset that, that Carol Dweck preaches um, and that kind of thing. And – like I was saying, is that book kind of just puts that in perspective of like, hey, there's literally no reason for me to get mad ever. So anytime a player is doing something that frustrates me, I kind of just like go into my mantra of whatever I'm, wh- whatever we're preaching for that day, right? So if the preaching is just get a touch, right? Make a make a balanced movement. It's something I say a lot. Once again, I'm just using volleyball examples because it's what I know. Make a balanced movement. Okay, and then you you make sure that you're just focusing on that part of it. And if they make the balance movement, that's great. You just have to kind of like narrow the focus and ignore um, ignore the the result play of it. And obviously that's not 100% true, right? Because competition's big. We thrive on competition, and one of the best things, um, or one of the th- you know, Michael Jordan never thinks about if he misses that three in Game Six of the Finals, he's not like oh, it's okay, I made a good shot, which put me in a position to make it the next time, right? No, he thinks like, okay, I just lost the finals. Um, and so there, there, I think there's a time and a place for for result-based orientation, right? Like you can say, great play, way to get the dig, even if they didn't necessarily do something right, if it's a game, right? If you're in match, you're not necessarily caring if they run things perfectly, if it results in, in a good play, and you're just trying to keep morale high. Um, but in practice, it's, it's being aware of your reactions. And I think that's one of the most important things that we do as coaches, right, is is not let our anger kind of show to our players, which maybe isn't necessarily good for ourselves because then we're not feeling the emotion. One of the things I think that, like, uh, Sarah Pavin and Melissa Humana Paredes, the Canadian beach women's beach pair, do really well is they kind of play – I don't want to say they play emotionless because they're not robots, right? Like they cheer, they're human, they have fun, they really enjoy it. But anytime they lose a point, it's not about the losing of the point. It's a it's an oriented focus of 
hey, we did something to allow us to move in this direction, which puts us in this opportunity for the next play. I think that's super cool. And it took them years to get into that focus, right? Because so often we have, you know, we're just focused on, on winning. And that happens. I think that starts at practice. You know, their coach, Scott Davenport, is big on that. His, his piece of advice to me is he's like, dude, I could run the same practice every day for four years and they could get better if they come at it with the right mindset. If we come at it with the wrong mindset, then it doesn't matter what I do. I could have the best drills in the world and they'd never get any better. And so it's adjusting that, that practice and, and being conscious of it, right? Not just going into practice with like, okay, here's my practice plan. Here's how I want it to work. But understanding that what's the end goal of practice? The end goal might be to get a little bit better at this skill. Well, it doesn't matter if we have to take, you know, if, if I only plan 20 minutes for that drill and it takes 35, that's not necessarily, a, that doesn't mean our practice failed, right? That doesn't mean we designed bad drills. Doesn't mean we're a bad coach. It just takes what it takes um, and, and kind of moving forward. And that's what uh, was it Michael Phelps' coach, I think, said that. He, goes, he, he coaches a swimming club in, in Maryland, I think Baltimore. And he talks about, like, he, when, when his kids talk about goals, he goes, takes what it takes. Takes what it takes. And so if we as coaches can kind of walk into a practice with that, but it takes that conscious sit down. And so when it comes to being frustrated and what do I do now, I almost need to, like, before I go to a job, before I go to a practice, I need to think about, okay, here's an opportunity for you to get frustrated. Here's what might happen. You might get frustrated because the job might be harder than you think it is. It might be more <laughs> of a pain to screw in this closet than it is, than, than you think it's going to be. It might not just be changing out the screws. Or you go to a practice and you think, um, the, the practice might not go perfectly. We might not get to every drill that we wanted to get to. It, it might take the full two hours on two drills. And the only time that that's bad is if the players aren't getting anything out of it, if you're just doing the drill for the sake of doing the drill. But if you come at it with the focus of, hey, we're trying to acquire the skill, and you set them towards the task of acquiring that skill, then that completely changes the complexion of a game, right? People, I'm sure people have felt those practices um, in their own life or felt those tasks at work, right? Those classes at school. Um, when, you, when you're given a, a goal and something to, to strive for at practice, a skill to work on, and it's a skill that you care about, you're bound to, to kind of fight a little bit harder to get it done, and then you don't notice the time passing. Time doesn't just pass quickly when we're having fun. Time passes when we have something to focus on and something to care about. Uh, which leads me to like buy-in. How do you create buy-in, right? And it's it's by showing people that you that you're willing to put in the time. I remember one of the first mistakes I made as a coach was I kind of started preaching this dogma about maybe a process based or a way to pass or what a way to play defense. Really, that balance movement thing, but moving at the point of contact is is very unpopular. A lot of people preach, um, you know stopped at the point of contact I wouldn't 100% agree with that um, and the problem is is that me as a 22 year old I can't walk into a program and say that I can't I didn't know that when I first started I need to be you need to first show that you're putting in time and that can be frustrating for a lot of people because sometimes you feel like you have this great knowledge base and you and you want to 
you immediately want to help these people get that much better, right? That's something that you know they can do to get them better. But the reality is, is they won't do it if they don't trust you. And so step one of creating that buy-in and getting them to focus on the process and getting them to buy into what you're saying is showing them that you're somebody worth trusting. Um, And I think that's something that I kind of realized halfway through one of my first years was that I had to I had to kind of earn trust and um, that can also be hard when you necessarily don't agree with everything being done at your program and so it's finding a way to 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 walk that line right you as an assistant coach especially your job is not to to change the way the the program is run right that's a head coach you have to be behind them at all times but you also have to be in a you have to have, create that relationship with your coach that allows you to challenge and change um, which takes once again takes time you have to show the head coach that you're putting in the time and you're willing to be a part of that team you're willing to help them out in any way possible uh, and that can be hard if you don't feel it reciprocal which is another important thing before you take a job and I think that's a something that I had to learn too is that sometimes it might seem good on the surface and it might not be the job for you. And that's something that's really tough to do because we put all this stock in interviews and meeting people in person, but oftentimes like an interview is right. People tell us in business school all the time, an interview is like the best version of yourself that you're ever going to see. A best version of an, of somebody you're hiring is at an interview. It's going to only go down from there in theory, right? Like nobody shows up to the interview in t-shirt and shorts and then all of a sudden is the best employee you've ever had wearing a suit every day. It, it doesn't work like that. But interviews can be deceiving because that best version of them might not even be close to the true version of themselves because everybody's hyper aware. And so it's finding those casual times. And I think it's really cool that nowadays like interviews are more personal, right? So it's like, hey, come in, wear the suit and tie, come do all this stuff, interview questions. But then we're going to do dinner or happy hour or something like that with the staff afterwards and you need and you're coming to that that's part of your interview process and I think that's such a cool and important piece because that's something I wish I would do with my during my hiring process um whenever I get to whenever I get to the point that I get an in-person interview I would love the opportunity to sit down and get to know the coach that I'm interviewing for um or the coach that I'm interviewing with I would love to get to know them as a person because that's so incredibly valuable to the program as a whole, right? If you don't believe in the person that's your head coach, how are you going to support everything they say, which then creates discourse in the team and doesn't create buy-in and creates this imbalance, and you're never going to get good. I'm a firm believer that you can teach the wrong thing with buy-in and see more success than teaching the right thing without ever getting buy-in from your team. And I don't know why. I wish I knew the science behind it. That's just something I believe. I don't have anything to back that up. Take it or leave it. Like, you might believe that. You might not. But that's something that I firmly believe. And so for me, as I go into this next chapter of my life, I'm going to think a lot about creating buy-in and how can I do it. That's one of the reasons I want to interview people along the way is, uh, is to try and and figure out what's important to them as people, right? What do they want from their bosses? Or as a boss, what do they want from their employees? 
I don't want to talk to volleyball coaches, non-volleyball coaches. Like, it's going to probably be most of my most people I know just because of the fact that that's like the easiest people to reach is people you know. So obviously, if anybody knows anybody out there that I don't know that wants to maybe talk and do a podcast, that'd be amazing. Um, but yeah, and I'm going to try and learn about what are the quickest ways to create buy-in because as an assistant and a volunteer at that, um, you've got to create buy-in kind of quick if you want to make an impact. Season's nine months long or so, right? We start in September and then you take the month off in December and then you're done by late April, early May if you're really good. And so it's really quick. It's a quick turnaround. That's what college sports are. And as a volunteer, you know, you don't know if you're going to be there from year to year. So if you really want to make your impact known on a team and you want to do it quick without having to volunteer for eight years, you've got to create that buy-in super quick. And as a volunteer, it can be tough, too, because you don't get necessarily all the, the access. Your job is not to, to be the strength and conditioning coach and not to be around the strength and conditioning. And you don't have to worry about academics. You know, you don't have to, you're not supposed to worry about all that kind of stuff. So how do you find other ways to create buy-in that don't just involve your knowledge base on the court? Um, you know, I got to work with our U.S. national team in California, but I can't tell you how many times I would be like, yeah, I was working with so-and-so this morning, and the, the kids that I was working with would be like, who? And you're like, oh, it's fine. They're only an Olympic silver medalist. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so uh, creating that buy-in is going to be something that I, I'm going to want to hear about from people along the way. That's my rant. It felt way more passionate than the last one. You'll probably never hear the last one, so uh, you'll have nothing to base it on. You'll probably be like, hey, this is still your worst episode yet, Colin. But um, felt better to me. Felt like a great journal. So once again, it's all for me. So if you don't like it, that's okay. Uh, I hope you do, though. hope you maybe get something out of it. Uh, along those lines, also reading books. I finished Talking to Strangers, uh, which was Malcolm Gladwell's newest uh, I'm I'm a sucker for all things Gladwell, and so that was an easy read, easy pickup for me. But I really like the the lessons learned about how we. One of the things it talks about is our our default to truth. So we always assume people are telling the truth, uh, just because that's how society's advanced. And then also, um, how a lot of times people think they can they're they're really good at like reading other people. You know what I mean? You'd be like, oh, I could tell by his body language that that he wasn't enthused or whatever. Um, and Gladwell talks about how we're pretty much as good at guessing that as we are at flipping a coin and landing on heads, which means about half the time we can actually tell um, what somebody's thinking or feeling, and the other half of the time we're pretty much we're pretty much out of luck, um, which I found really interesting, and I, I'm looking forward to like kind of taking into my my future interactions with strangers is because uh, people's backgrounds and cultural differences play a big factor into their uh, body language and their emotions. Uh, you know, we always we often think like, oh, if you're smiling, people know that you're happy. But actually, in other cultures, most, most Western cultures, I think, are, are like this, where it's like, smile, you're happy. But not all cultures. Um, I think there's a few places in South America, uh, a couple places in Africa, Asia, etc., where like smiling is not a sign of happiness. It's a sign of another emotion, which is really fascinating to me. And obviously that's a big example, right? Like everybody I interact with in America who smiles is going to be like, hey, smiling's good. But 
it, it's true for the smaller microcosms, right? Like if somebody's not facing you, it might not be because they don't like you. It might be because whatever they were raised, they were raised in a way by people who didn't face people, you know, whatever it is. Like we often take like looking somebody in the eye to be honest and discernible. I'd be willing to bet Bernie Madoff looked people in the eye, <laughs> right? And then he robbed them blind. I think he robbed like, I don't know, $50 billion or something like that. And so, um, it's a really good book. Highly recommend it. Like I said, I'm a sucker for all things Gladwell. Next book I'm picking up is uh, The Sports Gene, David Epstein. Epstein, however you say it. I'm looking forward to reading it. It's kind of been on the list for a while. And when I was at USA, Tyler Hildebrand, the, the head beach coach there, current uh, associate head coach at Nebraska for their indoor program, um, really preached about Epstein's, Epstein's new book, uh, range and so uh, it sounds like there's some good dogmas in there something we, we really like to teach and, and like to think about and so I'm looking forward to, to checking that out if you got any book recs um, that'd be great I'm also headed out on a road trip starting Sunday July or June 28th um, I'll be taking off all the way around the country for like a whole month and so if you or anybody you know is along the way, I would love to like catch up, um, grab coffee, chat, you know, interview you, even if it's like not for the podcast. Um, just getting to talk to people and learn from them, I think, would be super important in making more connections. So reach out at what do I do now pod on Instagram or what do I do now pod at gmail.com. Until then, thanks for listening. Um, pretty stoked. We're now on Spotify switched over to anchor which is like a podcast hosting service but they automatically distribute my stuff and they have unlimited recording hours which is pretty dope soundcloud was like hey by the way you've reached 50 percent of your uh, upload stuff and i was like okay that's two episodes that's not going to go real well anchor's unlimited so i'm pretty stoked to to use that and like i said they put me on like spotify and apple so anyway yeah reach out looking forward to it thanks for chatting thanks for listening to me uh talk to myself for another whatever, 30 minutes.